0: Well, I'd invite you to open your Bible with me to Acts chapter 2. Today we're going to look through nearly the whole uh, chapter, Acts chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 41. There were a few times in ancient Jewish culture where people from all across the world would gather together at Jerusalem, the capital city where the temple of God was. Think about the visitors that are going to go to Miami next week to see the Super Bowl from all across the world. Think about the visitors who are going to go to Tokyo this summer to see the Olympics from all across the world. Pentecost was one of those festivals that the Jews observed that brought the world to Jerusalem. Uh, it was a festival, a festival where uh, the people would bring the first share of their crops from the harvest to Jerusalem to offer as a um, offering to the Lord. Jesus' disciples were there in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Just a couple days ago, before that, Jesus had given his disciples a charge. They had a job to do. They were going to be his witnesses of his name and his resurrection across the world. But he told them to wait. They were going to go and be witnesses, but they needed to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come so they could have the power to witness. Pentecost arrived. The world was at their doorstep. And the power of God would come. Pentecost used to be remembered remembered as a celebration of the first harvest of the food gathered for the season. But now, after this event, it is remembered as the first harvest of souls that are gathered into the kingdom of God in the church. At Pentecost, the apostle Peter powerfully proclaimed that Jesus is the only supreme savior that the world desperately needs, and 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus. Today, we want to ask two questions about this event. The first, why? Why were so many people so convinced about Christ? And then also, we want to ask what? What reasons do we have to believe in him today? So as we do, would you stand together with me to read the scriptures? Today, we're going to read a portion of this passage, chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, and then verse 17 to verse 21. This is God's word. It speaks to us today, and this is what it says. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 17. And in the last days, it shall be, declares God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams even on my male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show them wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, shall be saved. You can take your seats, church. Peter, powerfully proclaimed that Jesus is the only supreme savior that all the world needs, and 3,000 people put their faith in him, in Jesus. Why? Why were they so convinced? What? What reason do we have to believe today? Well, they were convinced but it didn't happen immediately. It happened progressively. At first, they were just confused. People from all across the world gathered together at Jerusalem, and they heard who, people who they know were Jews from a small region in Israel, Galilee, somehow speaking international languages, from places that they've never been to and languages that they've never heard. How? Let's keep reading the text, chapter 2, verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, 'Are Are not all of these speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. This happened. They had utterances of other languages that they've never heard before from places they've never been before because of the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit that came upon them. Finally, God fulfilled his promise and baptized these early disciples in the Spirit. Now, I want to briefly share that there is a difference between the baptism of the Spirit and fillings of the Spirit. I want to share four things about the difference between these two. And they'll be pretty quick, but this is so important that after Easter for two weekends, we're going to take two weekends set apart to learn the specifics in detail of who is the Holy Spirit and how can I Day by day, live by the Spirit. But briefly, I want to explain the difference between baptism of the Spirit and filling of the Spirit. We believe that for each believer, there is one Spirit baptism that happens immediately upon conversion. We believe that each believer needs regular, ongoing filling of the Spirit, which is different than Spirit baptism. We do not believe speaking in tongues is required evidence of Spirit baptism. We do not believe there's a gap of time between conversion and spirit baptism. This was a unique thing that happened to them here, but 3,000 people would then hear the gospel and 3,000 people would receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. And that's what's key here. God kept his promise and poured out his spirit in power. And when he did, two things happened that have deep significance that show that there's a new way now that God relates to his people. We see these, this deep significance in the two things that happened, the mighty rushing wind, the sound like a mighty rushing wind and the divided tongues of fire, flames of fire that rested on each individual. The wind of God is regularly connected in the scripture with the breath of God that gives life. The scripture holds that God created man out of dust and he fashioned the man and formed the figure of the man. But even though the form was there, there was no life because there was no breath. But then God breathed. On him, and he became a living creature, a living human. And here, the wind of God, the breath of God, by the Spirit of God, rushes upon these people, and they are filled with new life. In a manner, they are recreated as new humans, formed not after dust, but formed after the image of Jesus. New life. And then flames of fire rested on each individual. The fire of God. The fire of God signifies God's holy and powerful presence. God's presence would often in the Old Testament be revealed through the midst of fire. Like when Moses met God's presence on Mount Sinai at the burning bush. Moses came upon a bush that was consumed with fire, but the bush itself wasn't being burnt up. And he heard a voice from the book that says, take off your sandals for you are standing on holy ground. The old way that the Lord met with his people and people interacted with his presence was they had to go to a specific place to interact with his presence. Moses was at Sinai, It was on holy ground. But now, each one of them were themselves holy ground because the fire rested on them. And just as the fire consumed the bush but didn't rely on its fuel from the bush but was sustained by its own power, so now, with the Spirit in us, you're filled with divine power, Christian, by the person of the Holy Spirit, And that power does not depend on you at all. Christian, this gift is for you, promised by God in the person of the Holy Spirit and in him through faith in Jesus, you have new life and you have divine power. But that might not be the way that you're feeling today. Your passion for Christ might feel quenched you may feel like a pile of dry bones that has no breath in it. Christian, the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, again, is what you need. The Holy Spirit can fuel you. The Holy Spirit can sustain you. The Holy Spirit can give you new life and power so that you have a vitality that is clearly not natural You will bear fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and more. And your life will fully glorify Christ for the spirit glorifies Jesus in all that he does. Man, who needs some of that? God knows I do. That's what these early disciples had. It was finally everything they were waiting for in that room. And on that day, 3,000 more would receive it. But at first to all those people, man, it was just confusing. What on earth is happening? But then, when Peter stood up to preach, their confusion to, turned into what I imagine would have been a sense of excitement. Look at verse 14. Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, saying, Of men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. That's 9 a.m. Pretty good idea at the 9 a.m. service for a preacher to step up and be like, just so you know, I'm not drunk right now. So clearly saying, it's like, listen, this isn't a natural thing. This is a supernatural thing. And the passage we already read before is a reference to Joel chapter 2, verse 28 to 32. Peter is essentially saying, God promised this would happen. God promised that he would pour out his spirit and there's a specific time that these Jews were actually waiting for when they knew God would pour out his spirit. It says in verse 17, in the last days it shall be that I will pour out my spirit. That term, that time, last days is really important and I think would have created a sense of excitement in them. And then also in verse 20 Before the day of the Lord comes, what would follow the pouring out of the Spirit in the last days would be a day called the day of the Lord. And I think this term would have also given the Jews a sense of excitement as well. Why? The last days were a time where the prophets of old told the people of Israel that the promised king that you've been waiting for would come and would liberate you from the oppression that you feel, which is so felt by the Jews of that time, because they were not living like the nation they were supposed to be. They were supposed to be independent, free, and even the envy of all other nations and rule all other nations. But right now, the Roman Empire and the Caesars ruled over them. And they heard, the last days are here. And the day of the Lord is coming. It would have been kind of like hearing... The new era you've been waiting for has arrived and the new world you are longing for is coming. New era, the last days. New world, the day of the Lord. What's the day of the Lord? Well, it's a time within the last days. The prophets talked about it as a great and awesome day, a fearful day where God would judge all those who oppressed his people and oppressed the vulnerable. The day of the Lord was a day of retribution where justice would finally be served and there would be equity on the earth. It was a day of retribution, and the Jews were made of thinking, finally, the Romans are going to get what they deserve. And it was a day of restoration. Following the day of the Lord, the prophets promised that the kingdom that God promised to Israel the glorious kingdom, the prosperous kingdom, the kingdom that would rule over all other kingdoms. It would arrive, and the liberating king would be enthroned and govern over his world and his people forever. The new world has arrived. The new world is coming. These Jews were... it, It was everything that defined their national identity. It was their entire hope. And they were told it was here. But... What they didn't realize that there was, a, was that their excitement was hollow and empty because they had a distorted view of themselves and a distorted view of who the true liberating king actually was. They thought they were the oppressed people who deserved restoration, but actually Peter would tell them, you are the oppressors. And the king that you've been waiting for, he already came and you murdered him. That excitement was crushed by hopeless distress. They were confused, that turned to excitement, but then they became hopelessly distressed. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth a list of things they were looking for in this promised liberating king who would inaugurate a new era and set up a new world. Top of that list was that he would be a warrior liberating king like the greatest king of Israel, the most famous king of Israel, King David. And he would actually be a son, a descendant from the family of David. But they didn't realize that it was actually Jesus. And Peter refers to two passages in the Psalms written by David himself that foretell two things would happen to this future liberating warrior king that would prove that that is the king. Number one, they would not experience corruption of their body. Death wouldn't be able to hold them. Number two, they wouldn't just have a throne on earth. They would ascend into heaven and have a throne at the right hand of God. Look at the text with me, verse 25. David says, concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, the future promised liberating king he's talking about. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known the paths of life. You make me full of gladness with your presence brothers i say to you with confidence about the patriarch david that he died and was buried and his tomb is with us this day being therefore a prophet and knowing that god had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of jesus christ that he was not abandoned to hades man apparently the sermon's really boring right now so hear crickets <laughs> <laughs> sorry just playing Verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter proves at first, Jesus is the one who would to come. He was prophesied that he wouldn't face the consequences of death. He would overcome them. The second, not just his resurrection, but also his ascension. Let's keep reading. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God... And having received the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has, poured out, uh, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David no, did not ascend into heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, David talking about the future liberating king, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. This is the point. Two reasons Peter gives to convince them that Jesus is the promised Christ and King. Number one, David died and was buried. But Jesus rose back to life. Number two, David had a throne on earth in Jerusalem, but there would come a king who would have a throne in heaven. Jesus died and rose back from the life. Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. See, the Jews who were hearing this, they knew that Jesus was a traveling preacher from Nazareth. They knew that he was crucified, but they thought he was a fraud. It was their plan to see Jesus suffer and die. It was God's plan to bring him back to life and put him on a throne. Peter used scripture to convince them that Jesus is the superior liberating king who poured out his spirit. And now when new era has arrived, a new world would be coming. And they were hopelessly distressed, cut to the heart. They finally realized, wow. We have a distorted view of ourselves. We're not just the ones oppressed. We are the oppressors. Jesus isn't a fraud and a criminal. He is Christ and Lord. And then they asked a question, verse 37. What shall we do? And this isn't, they weren't looking for like a three-point how-to list. What can we do? What should we do? No, 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 no. It was more like, What could could we ever, is there anything we can do? Is there any hope? They were cut to the heart. Their guilt was exposed, their shame was exposed because they had a distorted view of themselves and of Jesus. What about you? Do you think you have an accurate view of who Jesus is? And equally as important, Do you have an accurate view of yourself? There are a lot of problems in this world, man. Viruses ravaging through civilizations. Tensions in the Middle East creating wars and death that are seemingly unnecessary. Most of us think about the problems in the world as problems that come from the world. But not that I'm a problem. The problem's out there. I'm not the problem. The problem is that I got caught up in the wrong crowd. I'm not the problem. The problem is that the wrong person is in authority in the government. I'm not the problem. The problem is that I was mistreated by my ex. I'm not the problem. The problem is that I was born into a low-income family. I'm not the problem. The problem is that I was mistreated by the system. There are a lot of problems in the world. But the problems in the world aren't primarily a problem with the world, the problem is our hearts. The heart is the true inner self. It's the you that you're afraid others to see because you don't think you'll be accepted. When we talk about the heart, we talk about the most hidden and secure part of our soul. The heart is the strongest vault in the most secure military base. It's the strongest password behind the deepest, behind the biggest firewall in the deepest corners of the dark web. When you're dating, it's the last thing you want to share if you share it at all. When you're married, it's the first thing you want to hide when you know you've done something wrong. It's the place where we go to hide our most treasured desires, dreams, and darkest secrets. And we hide these things because we're afraid that if we're actually seen for who we actually are, we won't be accepted because we know the shame of what's in our hearts. You can delete your browser history, but there will always be a backup in your heart. You can hide those purchases by paying with cash, but it will always show up on the credit statement of your heart. You can share those explicit photos of yourself on apps where they disappear in 24 hours, but it will always be screenshot on your heart. You can leave your past in another country, but wherever you go, it will always be there as co-pilot in your heart. The problem isn't out there. The problem is here. We have a distorted view of ourselves and a distorted view of Jesus. But there's good news. The good news is that God is a loving father who loves you and you can trust with your whole life. You can trust that he's for your good and for your happiness. He created us to live in harmony with him. And in harmony with him, we were in purity of childlike innocence without fear and without shame, completely open and completely bare. But in the first generation of humanity and every generation since then, we have all bought the lie that God doesn't love us, that he can't be trusted, and that we need to make our own decisions for our lives. That's sin. And that's the problem in my heart and in your heart that creates the problems in the world. We are not in harmony with God. We are separated from his goodness and we are suffering because of it. Do you see the stain of sin on your heart as I see on mine? If you feel like you are cut to the heart even now, do you? If you feel like you're cut to the heart even now and exposed before God, The good news is that your father still loves you. You don't need to fear that he will put you to shame. The message of the gospel first cuts to our heart and exposes our shame. But then the message of the gospel of grace removes our guilt and covers our shame. So that when you repent of your sin and believe in Jesus, even though you're still stained by sin, the blood of Jesus covers your sin. And your loving father gazes on you with the same eyes that he looks on his own beloved son, Jesus. Christ bore the shame of your sin when he died on the cross and by his grace, we are not rejected. We are accepted. Believe on Christ turn from your sin. Stop having a distorted view of yourself. Stop having a distorted view of Christ. No, I am the sinner. He's the only Savior. These people here this day, they were confused, but then they were excited, but then they was crushed in distress. But then they heard a message of grace that they would be accepted by God even though they rejected Christ. And when they heard grace, that distress turned into hope, and resolve, I must decide to believe in Christ and repent of my sin. And if you recognize that you are a sinner and he's the only savior, you have one decision to make today. That is your only hope. Repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. They became resolved. Are you? Look at the text, verse 37. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. They became resolved when they heard a message of grace. Are you Grace is the favor of God that we desperately need, that we cannot earn by our own work, but is offered freely because of the work that Jesus has done. God showed grace to these men who conspired to kill Jesus. Will he not show grace to you? Certainly he will. Even though they rejected the Christ they could still receive the spirit of Christ. This is remarkable to me. They rejected Christ so definitively, so absolutely that they wanted him dead forever. But still, God with open arms said, repent, believe, and you will receive the spirit of Christ who will be alive in you forever. How? How could they receive it? How can we receive it? Repent and believe. Repentance is the change of mind. I used to think that I didn't need a savior, but now I know I'm a sinner. I used to think Jesus was just some name, some religious leader, but now I see he's the only hope and the savior of the world. I'm convinced. I used to reject his way, but now I need to follow his way. And faith is embedded within repentance. When I change my mind about who I am and who Jesus is, I transfer my trust for my salvation away from myself and from this world and transfer it completely onto Jesus and what he has done for me, believing the cost of my sin was paid by the price of his life. And baptism, baptism is the first step of walking in harmony with God again. Immersion into the water symbolizes that I died to my sin and shame with Christ. Emerging out of the water symbolizes that I am risen with Christ and his spirit is alive in me. Are you resolved? Do you know who you are? Do you see who Christ is? But maybe you're not. To be resolved is to have a settled mind, but maybe your mind is still rather unsettled. Maybe it's rather wavering because of your feelings. Could God accept me? Will others reject me if I accept Christ? Maybe your mind is a little turbulent right now. Imagine two people taking a short flight on an airplane, a short flight that's known for being a route that has heavy turbulence. One of these people takes the flight weekly for business. Turbulence is not a bother. They've taken it every week and they've arrived every time. The other is taking the flight for the first time. Never even ever flied before. And the thought of turbulence makes them feel quite terrified. What in the end will actually get both these people to their destination? How much do their feelings really matter? In the end, both of them have the same decision to make. Will I step off the tarmac and onto the plane? And once they do, no matter what their feelings, the only thing that actually gets them to their destination is the pilot and the plane. You are saved by grace through faith. Faith is the decision to step out, into the grace of Christ, and what gets you to the destination of eternal life is grace. Sam and the team are going to come out and they're going to begin singing a song for us, a song over us. It's a song of invitation, inviting you to make a decision today to step out in faith, to step out into God's grace. Today, I'm gonna invite you to make a decision to decide to repent and signifying it by stepping out of your seat, coming forward to the front and calling on the name of Jesus in repentance and faith. But first, let's listen to a portion of this song together. What decision must you make today? Some of you have heard Jesus for the first time. And for the first time, recognize that you are the sinner who needs to be saved. And you've been cut to the heart. You sense your guilt and you want forgiveness. You feel your shame and you want to be covered. If that's you, decide today to repent and believe in Jesus. God's grace is sufficient for you. You may not know what comes next. Your heart might be fluttering in turbulence trust your feelings, trust his grace that gets you to the destination of eternal life others of you have repented and have believed but you need to decide today to be baptized we often treat baptism like it's a coming of age ceremony like I'm saved and I'm born again and I'm a baby in Christ but uh, I need to wait till I'm a little more mature and then then I can be baptized that's not what baptism is baptism is signifying that I am now back in harmony with God. It's the first step every believer is commanded to make. Others of you have done both those things but today you need to decide to draw near to Him again. You're saved in Christ, you've been baptized, but you're far off from the Spirit for a long time. Whatever it means to have the breath of the Spirit in our lungs, you you haven't had that in a long time. And whatever it means to be consumed by the Holy Spirit's fire, you've forgotten. No passion, no breath. Living by yourself in your own power. Burnt out dry bones. Decide today to draw near to him again. Look at this passage, this hope we have, Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. You may have been ignoring his voice for so long because you're afraid of your shame. Christ bore your shame, and he's ready to cover it with his righteousness and his grace. Decide today to repent and believe. Decide today to be baptized. Decide today to draw near. While this song is playing, I'm going to invite you to step out. Come forward to the front and call on the name of Jesus with repentance and faith. You may think, do I really need to move? Can't I just do that here in my seat? Do I really need to walk from the back of the room to the front of the room to do this? Um, No. Following Jesus isn't about a one-time decision. It's about lifelong discipleship. But deciding to step out today, come forward, and call on Jesus' name can be your stake in the ground that says to God, I'm not just walking from the back of the room to the front of the room. I'm finally walking out of the darkness and into your light. Decide today. Step out. Come forward. Call on his name. You will find grace. Come now. You may have had a hard heart for a long time. You may have heard God's voice, have not heard God's voice for a long time because every time you did, you did harden your heart and you did turn from Him. Today isn't the day to harden your heart. Today isn't the day to say, I'll do it tomorrow. Today is the day to decide to step out in faith. So if you're still hardening your heart and saying, but there's people in front of me and I'm the middle of the row, or come, find His grace. Still come now. next verse that we're going to sing is just a beautiful exaltation of the glorious name of God we worship the Lord for all that he has done so if you still need to pray and confession before God you can stay in your knees but to the rest of us I would, I would invite you to stand but even if you stand and if you, you sing these words and they feel hollow in your heart you need to come forward So come stand and sing now, but if you can't sing these words with passion in your heart, you need to come and confess, repent, and ask for God to heal you by His grace. Let's stand now and sing.